0: Hello and welcome to Cutting Edge Issues Podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice Lecture Series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge Series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, to climate change policy, to decolonising academia. During the academic year 2020-21, we moved the series online, which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online, opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Great, okay, welcome everybody. My name is Duncan Green. I'm uh, a professor in practice at the LSE and uh, I also work for Oxfam. I'm probably the wrong person to be chairing this event, but um, we can talk about that later if you really need to. Um, It is a huge honour to introduce our two speakers today. Um, Our main speaker is Akasua Adamako Ampofo, um, who is a Ghanaian academic with a very long CV, but I'm going to shorten it. Um, She's a professor of gender studies and African studies at the University of Ghana. Um, she studied architectural design, so she's a boundary crosser in terms of disciplines, which I think is interesting. Did a PhD in sociology at Vanderbilt, um, Masters in Development Planning and Management, so polymath. Um, first head uh, of the Center for Gender Studies and Advocacy, interesting, um, at the University of Ghana, but also a founding member of the African Studies Association of Africa. And I think this was at least partly, well, Akasura can sort of clarify. But my understanding is this was at least partly a response to all those African studies associations of somewhere else, um, of the US, of the UK. And I think it's a, a wonderful initiative. Um, she's going to be speaking on decolonizing academia. And then she'll speak for about 40 minutes. And then we have our discussant, who is the LSE's very own Rashita Nandagiri, who is a fellow in the health and international development uh, 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 team at the Department for International Development. She focuses on sexual and reproductive health and rights uh, in low and middle income countries. But she's also been uh, leading a rather interesting exercise to do a diversity analysis of the uh, International Development Department's course reading lists, uh, which I've also been involved with. So she may touch on that in her remarks or she may not. She will be a discussant after Akasura finishes speaking. So without any more delay, Akasura, over to you.
1: Thank you very much, Duncan, and thanks to everyone for joining us, and a pleasure to have Rishita um, speak um, after me, and I, I hope with me. Um, and thanks again to, to Duncan and to James for the invitation to be part of what you guys have called cutting-edge issues in development, thinking, and practice, and for having the confidence to include me in this series, because there's, uh, as, as you said, Duncan, at the beginning, an impressive and for me intimidating list of speakers, and I'm not sure that what I'll be sharing uh, will be cutting edge, but hopefully it'll be worthy of a conversation that um, is important for all of us. Um, thanks also to Deepa Patel and any folks behind the scenes who are working this event. So, if we can uh, quickly do first slide and then roll to the second slide. So I have called this um, I've called this talk. Still decolonizing the academy, because really we, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about is this something that we still want to do? And I'll I'll come to that in a moment. So, uh, yes, let's um, roll to the second slide. So in the African and I want to say in the decolonial spirit of acknowledging our ancestors, could I ask us to hold a moment's silence to recognize some of those who left us in 2020? And there'll be thousands of them. So the ones that I have selected, and, and we'll look at them in the next couple of slides, are suggestive rather than prescriptive. Some need no introduction, but I will make some comments on a few of them for our edification and um, for us to think about as, as I read what I have picked up uh, on them, mainly from Wikipedia and some other online sources, about what that might have to do with the um, decolonization agenda. May their souls rest in peace. Can we go to slide number three, the next slide? So there are a bunch of people on on your screen, and I'm gonna say, as I said, something briefly about um, each of them to to honor them and to encourage us. Um, I believe that John Lewis needs no introduction, so I won't say anything about him. Bill Withers. Bill Withers was an American singer, songwriter, and musician, and he had several uh, hits over a relatively short career, about 15 years including Ain't No Sunshine, Grandma's Hands, Use Me, Lean On Me, Lovely Day, Just the Two of Us. He won three Grammy Awards and was nominated for six more. His disdain for Colombia's uh, executives, or as he called them, black spurts, um, in, in, in trying to control, to exert influence over his sound, led him to exit the scene. So he, he, he wasn't um, an active artist for very long. But he was willing to 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 step away from that scene in order to get his music um, not to be appropriated. Let's say, so he effectively ended his performing career, even though remixes of his work um, have continued. So for him, it was really not a, just about the dollar. Ellis Masalis is a leading educate was a leading educator at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, the University of New Orleans, and Xavier University of Louisiana. Uh, He influenced the careers of countless musicians, as well as four of his own sons, Winton, Branford, Delfeo, and Jason, whom um, some of you may know. Uh, Kobe and Gianna Bryant. I'm not going to say much about Kobe, but I recently chanced on a very thoughtful letter written to um, Kobe's wife by Gianna's mate, Aubrey Callaghan. And she said, among other things, about Gianna Bryant, that she was kind, caring, and endlessly polite, that she was fiery stubborn a fierce fighter but humble and that at her young age she actively engaged in fighting for equality in sports. Barbara Alimadi was a political and human rights activist from Uganda. In 2012 she co-organized a protest against a televised police assault of Ingrid Turiwani, an opposition politician who had her breast squeezed by a police officer. Then of course, Betty Wright, the wonderful, amazing um, singer and Chadwick Bozeman, who also needs no introduction. Next slide, please. So on with our roll call, Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride broke racial bar- barriers on his way to becoming a pioneering black country uh, musician and um, died of complications of COVID-19 at the age of 86. And COVID-19, obviously, I'm sure is, uh, you know, nothing strange to any of us in the room, also has reared its head in in the, um, the way that it has, it, the way that the research and the interpretations of the findings and the discussions about people's lives um, fits very Unhappily, happily in, 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 in the colonial scheme of things. Morey Kante was a Guinean vocalist and player of the kora harp. He was best known internationally for his 1987 hit song, Yeke Yeke, which reached number one in Belgium, Finland, the Netherlands, and Spain. The album it came from, Aquaba Beach, was the best selling African record of its time. Hawa Abdi is a Somali human. Was a Somali human rights activist and physician. She was the founder and chairperson of the Dr. Howard Abdi Foundation, a nonprofit organization. In 1983, Abdi opened the Rural Health Development Organization on family owned land in the southern lower Shebele region. It began as a one room clinic offering free obst- obstetric services to around 24 to 30 rural women per day and later evolved into a 400 bed hospital when the civil war broke out in somalia in the early 1990s abdi stayed behind at the behest of her grandmother who had advised her to use her qualifications to assist the vulnerable and of course she was consistently um, attacked and yet um, refused to leave her country zinzi mandela mandela i think uh, needs no introduction emmanuel manu dibango was a cameroonian musician and songwriter who played the saxophone and vibraphone he developed a musical style fusing jazz, funk, and traditional Cameroonian music, best known for, of course, his uh, single, Soul Makosa in 1972. He also died from COVID-19-related uh, uh, complications in March of last year. Anthony Onwede is, um, I hope, quite well-known now uh, as he died as a result of um, attacks Nigerian police during the Nsars uh, protests. And NSAs protests, of course, were a response to the uh, the violence of the notorious Special Anti-Robbery Squad in Nigeria, whose officers were repeatedly accused of criminal activity, ranging from extortion to extrajudicial killings. Um, last but not least, on the slide, Bruce. Boynton, an important but often forgotten figure of the civil rights movement, died from cancer on November 23rd at the age of 83, while enrolled at Howard, um, a traditionally uh, or historically black uh, university in the US. During his final year of law school, he was arrested in Richmond, Virginia, after he refused to exit a whites only section of a bus station uh, restaurant. Boynton, along with his then attorney, Thurgood Marshall, who also needs no introduction, died many years ago, would go on to spark a series of events that eventually overturned the Jim Crow laws across the country and inspired the Freedom Riders movement. So 2020 was a painful year, was a traumatic year. I have to say that loud because I want to talk about pain today. And even though I'm trying to bring some some laughter into my voice because we need to laugh, when Duncan invited me to give this lecture in, uh, in in July 2020, I was checking my email today. I chose one of the last possible dates in hopes that by January 2021, things, life, the academic space, my colleagues and friends, and I inhabit, would look more like my normal. I had hopes of being back in the physical classroom, even though this particular talk was planned to be virtual. I also had hopes that I would have other opportunities to meet people over cups of coffee and glasses of wine. And here we are, what is normal? As Duncan well knows, I was also resistant to the topic of decolonizing. It was just over a year ago that I spoke at LSE and subsequently did an interview with Duncan on this subject. I told him then that I had been given the name anti-decolonized by one of my daughters with an eye roll because her view and justifiably so was like, wow, another talk on decolonizing. My other daughter referred to this, and I have now appropriated the term as mine. It's in print, as decolonization remix. Indeed, there's been a lot of copy and pasting on the topic. One Twitter conversation last year was very scathing of academics who talk about decolonizing ad nauseum. But as we would say in Ghana, we know they feel them cry, all talk, no action. But as I argue elsewhere, sometimes a remix can be useful, even exciting. At the 2020 LSE talk that I gave, I noted that a remix can breathe new energy into old struggles. On that occasion, I evoked the image of Beyonce Knowles and Gary Clark Jr. performing Master Blaster as a tribute to Stevie Wonder at the 2016 Grammy Awards. Anyway, in terms of some statistics, I am a sociologist after all. This morning I was checking and there were 643,000 entries in Google search from talks to books to articles to conferences about decolonization just for the period, um, you know, the last few years. Google Scholar between 2015 and 2020 has over 21,000 entries under decolonization, education, knowledge, methodologies, pedagogy, curriculum, feminisms, museums, social work. And I didn't go into any of these, so there's probably a whole lot more. And it's just because of the way that I did my search. In that same period, 2015 to 2020, I have given 32 talks, interviews, podcasts explicitly related to decolonizing higher education, the curriculum, or African-centered knowledge. And looking at my CV and doing the actual count this morning, I actually was quite horrified. But while this may not all sound immediately exciting or hopeful, hopeful um, and I'll suggest subsequently why it is not hopeless, we are dealing with a chronic situation. So if we just put 2020 on board with everything from the murder of George Floyd, the global racial injustice to the end SARS movement in Nigeria, and the assault on the U.S. Capitol and everything in between, we know that the monster of a racist colonial agenda is alive and well. Um, When we're dealing with HIV AIDS, when we're dealing with diabetes, when we're dealing with high blood pressure, these are chronic diseases. We don't stop talking and fighting and writing about them because it's been done and it's been done. And so in as much as we're uncomfortable, in as much as we may roll our eyes, decolonial work is resistance work. It is anti-racist work and it requires ongoing battles, long and grueling. We may be exhausted, but we do not have the option or the luxury not to soldier on and on and on. In any case, at any point in time, some leave the battlefield and others join. So there has to be continuous, unbroken conversations and strategies. That also is not an option. You know, being called on to be on the podium, um, give these talks, being that special lecturer, keynote speaker, blah, 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 especially when it has a, a big name, cutting edge issues in development, thinking and practice. I mean, what does that even really mean? Anyway, on these kinds of platforms, I always feel both excited and nervous. Excited because, to be honest, it is a big deal, even when you have been around as long as I have. You get to have your say uninterrupted. You get to have an audience. You hope it will resonate and impact. But you're also vulnerable. There's always the risk that your lecturer will fall flat. It will not connect. It will be boring. Um, some years ago, I was giving a talk to a small group of young people. And my other daughter signaled me, and I quote, it's getting boring. Move quickly to the Q&A. Thank God for daughters to keep it real. So now we're on Zoom and i cannot see folks sigh or smile or cheer or laugh or roll their eyes if we were meeting physically for this particular talk at this particular time i would have requested that we dispense with the podium and sit on a circle in a circle on the floor i would have wanted us to be in close proximity and allow room for shared laughter tears even a touch maybe a space where we could be vulnerable hopeful and productive together so i was given 45 Uh, minutes 40 minutes 45 minutes to speak but i really would like to see this talk as if it was a book and then i'm doing the editor's introduction to deep and hopefully personal conversations and where the q a would be your chapters in our shared responsibility from what i see on twitter young people especially have so much to share that we don't even see in the mainstream from the conversations the blogs the artistic curations the mining of historical information Wisdom, they say, is like a baobab tree. No one individual can break it. So let's go back to speaking about pain and trauma. Can we have the next slide? So God knew I needed a lot of guidance on this one. Because as I said, you know, what's there to say? What's there to underline? Fortuitously, some young women came to the rescue. Jessica Horn posted something on Twitter about how about we talk about decolonizing the disciplining of children and where the ways in which we approach the physical disciplining of children came from, which led to a comment from Nikita Dede Ajako, which led me to her article titled, What is the Dangbe word for chameleon in Africa as a country? And I want to quote her. It's a bit long, but bear with me. So I'm quoting her. A few weeks ago, I asked my mother for the dangwe language translation of the English word chameleon. She couldn't remember it. She insisted that she knew it, but hadn't used it in a long time, deferring rather to the English word. So my mother called her sister, who unsurprisingly didn't remember either. They called another aunt, who they assured me spoke proper dangwe. Strangely, she used the tree equivalent of obosum a keteo. Convinced that, the Dangbe, convinced that this was the Dangbei word. The search continued. Friends were called, pocket dictionaries were consulted, and memories were racked till the word Akasi was found. The entire exchange was hilarious, but filled me with a profound sadness. Unquote. Later in the same article, she talks about the ways in which our own languages are treated as a base block for learning. Mother tongue to help you get settled more or less, only to be discarded along the the line for the real deal. These are my words, not hers. This is not an area I have expertise in, and many scholars have written about the trauma people experience when their mother tongue is lost, eroded, forbidden. I do recollect uh, an instance under the work of the Ghana Institute of Linguistics and Bible Translation, where a woman who looked to me to be in her 90s received and read from the Bible in her own mother tongue without glasses, by the way, and wept. This exchange between uh, Jessica and Dede on Twitter led me to ask the question, what the key issue to decolonizing would be, to which Jessica Horn said, decolonizing imagination, because it it brings all things here. Indeed, if we cannot imagine a post-colony, if we cannot create it, from birth, from our imagination, we cannot work towards it. So before I say a few more things about trauma and imagining our promised land, let's do a quick review. Decolonize 101. Next slide, please. So here's what I have to say about uh, what decolonize means for me in brief. It's a, a, it's a diagnosis of Western culture's impact especially its racialized philosophical underpinnings, its institutions, its norms, its values, its practices on the lives of minorities and other cultures, the subaltern, we might say. The impact being assessed is not that born out of a benign meeting of minds and cultural intercourse, but that which was imposed often violently through the colonial encounter, an ongoing encounter, obviously. The diagnosis is not intended to elicit mere whining or blaming others for one's tribulations. It's the beginning of a process, a prognosis of options to experience liberty, healing, restoration for the colonized. And it involves removing the shackles and legacies of hierarchical racialized thinking and practices, including, I would say firstly, among peoples of Africa and African descent. We have to liberate ourselves. As um, Bob Marley famously said. In a 2020 article in Critical African Studies, the journal Critical African Studies, titled Decolonizing African Studies, Shose Zoe Marks, and Elewani Ramugondo argue that, and I quote, decolonizing is best understood as a verb that entails a political and normative ethic and practice of resistance and intentional undoing unlearning, and, and dismantling of unjust practices assumptions and institutions as well as persistent positive action to create and build alternative spaces and ways of knowing it's not something that happens you you, you have to recognize where it came from and actively undo i'm still quoting them we present four dimensions of decolonizing structural epistemic Personal and relational, which are entangled and equally necessary. We offer the Black Academic Caucus at the University of Cape Town as an example of how these dimensions can come to life and introduce the contributions in this special issue, the first of a two part series. So, this um, came out in 2020. So, look at critical African studies for the series on colonizing African studies. Next slide, please. So I have placed here a couple of texts that are well-known to all of us, and I'm just going to read off a number of names of some of my favorites, but by no means exhaustive that we might, um, you know, I'm sure all of us have read at some point. Um, uh, we all have our, um, you know, our favorite authors and those that resonate for us. I just wanted to share some of mine with you. And, and, and of course, The Wretched of the Earth by Fanon, was characterized as the Bible of decolonization uh, by Stuart Hall, I believe. So on my, my list, I've got Ngugi Wafiongo, Zora Neale Hurston, Walter Rodney, W.E.B. Du Bois, Vanessa Aga-Jones, Toni Morrison, Suleiman Bashir Diagi, Paul Robeson, James Baldwin, Patricia Hill Collins, Osman Sembene, Maya Angelou, Langston Hughes, Kwame Nkrumah, Kara Keeling, Judith Butler, Jatri Spivak, Edward Said, Kwab Nasechi, Kaisley Hayford, Amilka Cabral, Ashil Mbembe, Efua Sutherland, Sabelo Ndlovu Gacheni. Uh, Africa is a country blog, and um, to do some self-advertising here, the Critical Investigations into Humanitarianism blog, which I'm a co-editor. Next slide, please. Now, in all the work that um, has been done, the advocacy, the activism, the artistic work, the talks, the blogs, the series, the protests, I've tried to synthesize some of the calls into this, um, what I've called a to-do and an undo list for those of us who work on these um, issues. Obviously, there are structural issues that um, in the academy, we have to look at, for example, the material resources and opportunities. We cannot correct these um, without attacking the epistemic issues. Uh, however, right? So if we don't have if we don't have enough uh, black faculty or students, or um, you know students from Asia or um, you know other minority groups, it's not just about the numbers, but the uh, epistemological underpinnings need to be paid attention to. The how and the what and the who of research and teaching, the devaluing and erasure of the voices of certain groups and the knowledges of others. Um, Jatry Spivak coined the term epistemic uh, violence to address this, and uh, of course the funding of research and, and so forth. The list also addresses relationships. So rather than burdening Black and Brown scholars to explain, to advocate, to fix, and provide pastoral care, or maybe I, let me not say. Rather than in addition to doing some of that work, it requires white and historically privileged uh, scholars to simultaneously catch up. You know, the the I don't know enough. Can you tell me? It's, you know, it's, many years have, have have happened. It's 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 no longer adequate to say I don't know. Just read, um, get catch up with the discourse, with the scholarship, with the experiences, with the methods. Catch up. But at the same time, also step back and relinquish and create spaces for minority uh, scholars to inhabit the spaces that they need to inhabit or that they have been historically been excluded from. And of course, this uh, to-do and undo list um, should also be founded on the personal. It's not on the list, and I'm not going to go through the list because you can all see it. What's your game plan? What's my game plan? There are, I think, way too many smart, well-expressed academics whose hearts don't seem to truly beat with a mission. This is a political project. It cannot be a celebrity journey. I hope you all feel me. Next slide, please. So I have left this um, slide blank because I hope that um, people in the room can, can fill the slide uh, for us. Of course, we, we can't physically fill the slide now, but if you can add um, thoughts into the chat box, we will populate this slide, and then when we come back to the Q and A and the conversation, we can talk about what you guys, um, your experiences with with pain and trauma and recovery have been. So historically, trauma is um, is, is something that you know it, it it impacts us as individuals, but it also impacts us. Um, as entire communities and within our communities and refers to, you know, when we're talking about a people group, that a a group of people are traumatized, that, uh, that, you know, the colony and its after effects and, and, and racism are traumatizing, it refers to that cumulative emotional and psychological wounding as a result of, you know, this group trauma that we experience. So that when it's happening, you know, wherever else it's happening, we, f- we feel the pain. We wait to exhale um, collectively. And we, ex- and, and we experience this across uh, generations. And this type of trauma is often um, associated with, um, you know, particular racial and ethnic population groups who, had, who have suffered major inter- intergenerational losses and assaults on their cultures and well-being. So for example, obviously the legacies from enslavements of, of peoples um, around the world and, and displacement and erasures of their cultures and their languages and, and so on. And the result of these events is 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 traumatic stress that is, is passed on and and it you know enough scholars have written about the passing on of, of this trauma um, you know, not not just socially through shared um, you know a, sharing experiences within a family or within a community but that the reactions actually are embodied the the impact is not only about what has happened in the past but also about what is still happening in the present to to target uh, particular groups of people and we saw that in 2020 don't need to rehash it now this wounding is not only to be found in the west or spaces where black and brown people are numeric or social and political minorities so even in places like ghana where i live the silencing, the erasure, the replacement of indigenous knowledge happens. It it just happens to be more subtle, and um, uh, less. Ac- it, it's more subtle. It's it's less acknowledged. And 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 when you, you 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 seek to raise it, you're often accused of being you know of buying into a, a Western uh, narrative. I want to say a few things about, about epistemic. Um, violence and pain and, and, and trauma. Santos in 2017 notes that when there's a failure to recognize the different ways of knowing by which diverse people across the globe make sense of the world and provide meaning to their existence, then cognitive injustice occurs. When we fail to recognize that we know differently, we learn differently, we approach the world differently, translate it differently, interpret it differently, And valorize one above the other cognitive injustice occurs galvan alvarez also notes and i quote him violence exerted against or through knowledge is probably one of the key elements in any process of domination it is it is not only through the construction of exploitative economic links or the control of the political military apparatuses that domination is accomplished but also and i would argue most importantly through the construction of epistemic frameworks that legitimize and enshrine those practices of domination, Uh, 2010, right? So the obvious forms of domination, the the military, the economic, the political, he is arguing are so enshrined in knowledge that one has to recognize where they are coming from. Sebastian Gabe defines epistemic violence as a forced delegitimation, sanctioning and repression of certain possibilities of knowing, going hand in hand with an attempted enforcement of other possibilities of knowing." You know, same same narrative. You devalue one, you kill it, and then you lift the other one up. Ngugi Wafiongo in 86, referred to the, uh, this process of epistemic violence in terms of an invasion of the mental universe of colonized people, the removal of the hard disk of previous African knowledge and memory, and downloading into African minds the software of European knowledge and memory. This removal and replacement is linked to a second form of epistemic violence, which occurs when social scientific data on particular groups, the other, are interpreted to show them as a problem, inferior or in practice subhuman, even when the data allow for equally viable alternative interpretation. So, one group of people, Euro-Americans, the privileged group, carry out studies and interpret the data in a particular way to make that other group um, look inferior. And, and, it, and it's not just about what we read and how we imbibe that and how we feel our, about ourselves, but we are ta- in 2021, we're talking uh, COVID, and we know how particular groups have been resistant to vaccines because they know historically that science has been so often employed to uh, you know, to harmful uh, so-called scientific uh, interventions. And of course, we can talk about the infamous Tuskegee study um, on, on black men in the US. And they are contemporary examples, which I don't have time to go in, but maybe in the Q&A we might get back to them. A third form of epistemic violence is when a people's knowledge is delegitimized and then erased Reappropriated or otherwise taken over without their knowledge their permission or the provision of any form of compensation so it's not just about killing it and replacing it but there's an economic cost to this and in many instances this knowledge is actually sold back to the original owners at a price creating a double loss and we can see this very much in the in the the entertainment industry where music is uh, is appropriated and then you 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 know in, in order for you to en- enjoy music that actually you originally owned and it's been used in a movie or whatever now you're paying for this product that originally was yours the silences and erasures perpetuate the first form of violence that enables the removal of indigenous knowledge and its replacement by european-centered knowledge take uh, Greta Thunberg Thunberg i'm not sure i'm probably mispronouncing her name a young environmental activist she's famous She's also white, and she's not poor. But how many people know Kaluki Paul Mutuka, the Kenyan climate advocate and environmental defender, or Leah Namu Gerwa, the 15-year-old Ugandan activist, also an environmental activist? These young African activists are often referred to in the media as the greater turnbag of their country, or are said to be following in her footsteps. Even in the case of uh, Mutuku, who began his public activism long before uh, Greta Thunberg started hers. All of these forms of epistemic violence are facilitated at breakneck speed today by another form of violence that I refer to as information violence. It has become almost a soundtrack to our lives today, an assault on our consciousness with the constant privileging of particular stories, including fake news that exaggerates caricatures and crystallizes epistemologies of violence so that they assume a powerful inevitab- inevitability from which we feel we cannot escape. Okay, so you you hear it so often. You 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 know you are assaulted by explanations of um, why are so few Africans dying of COVID-19, uh, which in the meantime, since that was the narrative, has actually changed. And there was always some kind of explanation uh, sought, or often an explanation sought in many of these narratives that it was, you know, something inherent, it wasn't about behavior, it wasn't about policies, and and so forth. They are the visuals, they are the books, they are the websites. Um, I remember in, uh, on many of my visits to the University of Cape Town, but particularly in 2014, when the Roads Must Fall movement was starting, and I was living in Africa House on the lower part of UCT campus, and climbing up to upper campus, uh, sometimes to use an office that had been given to me, and passing the, the, the statue of Rhodes every day. And I, I found it so offensive. And I know that people, including other Ghanaian scholars, have walked past it without it impacting them, because they probably were not very familiar with the history of Rhodes. But it disturbed me each time I would walk up and down the hill. The images of, uh, of white Jesus and white Mary and white angels. I mean, people have taken these for granted, you know, not stopping to, to consider what people who follow that faith. And even people who do not might feel with this, uh, you know, imagining of what their version of a God looks like. The inability to use your mother tongue the expressions in the academy about how articulate you are and how good your English or French or German or Portuguese or French is. Um, Your colleague who publicly conflates the demand for a diversity hire with a lowering of academic standards. I went, um, I was on sabbatical in the US in 2015, 2016 in a, a small sectarian college in California and uh, one of the first meetings I attended, uh, someone said to me how difficult my name was and did I have a nickname he could use. And I was like, you know, what the um, the hair, the clothes, the food, the expressions about them, the expectations about them, the way the person of color becomes the poster child for uh, diversity, even when maybe they are the, the only one in the group. In another uh, school where I was a uh, visiting a faculty, a faculty member said in a classroom, and, and I heard this later because it came to the, to the faculty senate. In the classroom, to the single black male student in the classroom, and I don't remember what this class was about, said to him um, that his mama was probably very proud and relieved that he had not ended up in a gang. And, and, and people laughed, you know, and, and thought that this actually was a compliment. After George Floyd's death, we tried to hold a memorial um, in Ghana, you know, for, for George Floyd's death, but um, also about loss of black lives um, ar- around the globe under a variety of um, conditions. And the, the police came, and um, even though we had, according to the laws, we had given the police um, 48 hours notice, they came and sought to dis- disband um, the, the memorial, saying that it was a, a protest and um, it was likely to cause some insecurity and so on. And, you know, the outright disrespect for the occasion and and for the people who are trying to hold a peaceful protest, um, you know, was very ironic because just a few days prior to that, the, the government had held its own uh, vigil at the Du Bois Center and was, uh, you know, sympathizing or empathizing with um, you know, black people globally. And decolonization is not a metaphor, unquote, 2012 by Eve Tuck and uh, Wayne Yang. They remind us that even where there is a show of a willingness to change things, the easy adoption of decolonizing discourse by educational advocacy and scholarship, evidenced by the increasing number of calls to decolonize our schools, decolonize our methods, decolonize student thinking, turns decolonization into a uh, a metaphor. It reduces, it devalues, because according to them, it allows the the evasions or for the settler and the colonizer to move into a space of innocence because they've delivered, they are are responding to and they are um, indicating that they will uh, decolonize. And that problematically, um, you know, that problematic attempt uh, you know, seeks to reconcile, um, you know, the settler into a space where they can be let off the hook and and evade uh, guilt and complicity. So finally, um, slide 10, please. Imagining and recovery. So we are struggling for epistemic freedom. And this is about acknowledging that all people have valid knowledge systems and according all peoples their intellectual sovereignty, recognizing their epistemic virtue and according them their humanity. Globu Gacheni, 2018. Nyamjo in 2017 says that epistemic freedom, wholeness, and recovery delivers convivial fellowship that confronts and humbles. We can then work together. And it's rooted in epistemic disobedience, back to the fact, as I said at the beginning, that this is a struggle and this is an anti-colonial battle project. It presupposes a delinking of epistemically and politically formed webs of imperial knowledge and their management. Okay? So we, we have to assume that the colony has has disenfranchised. You know, it's a given and, and we respond to that. And as we search for meaning, remembering and retelling our stories becomes a vital act of epistemic freedom. This is where our imagination comes into play. We have to tell stories, whether we sing them, whether we write them, whether we speak them, it's one of the defining features of what it means to be human, to have a story, to have something to share. It's the vehicle that carries our histories, but also our current realities and dreams for our futures, and thus it can engender freedom and propel a people to their destiny. Adwa Bedu, a medical doctor that I went to college with, turned storyteller and performance artist who lives in um, Toronto now, in a talk entitled "Unleashing the Story," says uh, some of the following things, and I'm quoting as well as paraphrasing her. This story, this imagining our future, stems from my belief, she says, in the spirituality of the story. The fact that the story exists somewhere in a creative space, yearning to be birthed. It's there, but we have to imagine it, she says. It lives in our thoughts, but it is art that gives it to life. It can stay in our heads. We've got to birth it through our art forms. And uh, of course, on this occasion, she was talking very much about the story. Afterwards, after we birthed it, given it life in the story, that story must live in society, creating community. And she cites Antilles of the Savannah by Chinua Achebe, where he describes evocatively the place of the storyteller in society. The storyteller knows their history, but it's more than a rote, the storyteller is more than a a rote historian. He or she is the creator of the future, and he puts the trunk of the story back on its stump. And, and it's, it's this decolonization of our lives, of our knowledge, of our being that has taken the trunk of the stump and we are putting it back. The, the, the crack will still be there, but we are putting it back and we are having a new story for the future through our imagining. Chinua Achebe interprets the story to heal and to advance vision, belonging and purpose. Achebe says, while madness will drive a person to destroy community, the storyteller is corralled to the compound to serve it by his creativity. He does not run away. She does not run away. We recognize that there's traumatic stuff, but we have to have a future. We have to have a vision. We have to imagine and to serve our community with this. Beidou says that many believe that technology or science is the way forward in development. And I love that she, as a medic, uh, says this and argues that science and technology only have assistive power, not causative strength. The real drive forward, she argues, into the future is the story that is heard, known, held, and believed corporately. It is what many are looking for in the idea of the African Renaissance. It begins with thought and creativity art literature theater dance and then it, it is birthed through science but it begins with our imagination with our vision and with our hope and thus we must stay connected to new ideas we must stay connected to technology that can assist us in serving our imagination the story already exists you know we know the story we know the stories of the past and we know the stories of the future through our hope But we have to imagine them creatively into being. And it's the storyteller's role to know the end of the story. Thus, we must tell the story vibrantly and flamboyantly, Beidou argues. We must fit upon the classical trunk branches of the story that synchronize with the past and lead into the future. For the story in its spiritual place is unforgettable and inspirational, even visionary. So I would, I would ask, if we, what, what would Kwikwanansi, the notorious spider, look like in a 2021 story? Would a new imagining of Kwikwanansi look sacrilegious? How could we employ Kwikwanansi to look at racial violence, to look at epistemic violence, to look at uh, responding to COVID-19? What kind of experience would we build? How would we use Nancy to build our craft as storytellers, and to also um, instill hope into um, the the next generations and into our future. One can make an impact by one explosive wave, but even more so by sustained waves and ripples and journeys downstream and back upstream. And that's what a movement is. Because a movement is not a moment. A movement has to be sustained organically amongst us in order to 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 survive we need our passion we need our anger we need our energy to have conversations commitments and creativity and of course we need skill and so we must engage in training to use the latest technologies for the benefits of building that that imagined future and fitting the trunk um, back onto the, the the stump so that it can impact our art and society at large. And I would argue that successful movements can advance the story in amazing, amazing ways that we cannot even um, think of. It doesn't have to happen in our lifetime. It doesn't have to happen for us to see. But once we know that the process is ongoing, then we have the peace of knowing that we are attracting a following that will carry it from generation to generation. It's community work. It has to be carried out with humility. It has to be carried out with caring and generosity. As the Shona people um, say in response to the question, how are you? I'm well if you are well. Our future can only survive if all of us uh, are in this together. It's, as I want to repeat, it's not about um, celebrity academics. It's not about celebrity uh, students. It's not about celebrity artists. More than any other people, we need this I am well if you are well um, paradigm in order to survive. Therefore, in the end, we can also attract financial recompense. I haven't talked about that, but it means that we will also feel the money roll into our communities and into our pockets, adding value and uh, longevity to the story. And I believe that I have one more slide. Yes. Yes which is uh, basically to say thank you to all of you, to express my gratitude for you staying in the room and uh, my gratitude into the future for your contributions to the conversation we're about to have and for populating uh, the slide on pain and trauma and um, vision and healing. And that's my Twitter feed and my website for those who are interested in engaging with me um, after this conversation. So thank you very much. Medase Asantisana.
0: Akasua, that was absolutely extraordinary. Um, uh, I'm not going to go into rave mode just yet, um, but that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Everybody, um, could you both put your questions to Akasua in the chat? We'll pick those up after our discussant? And also, if you have examples, uh, illustrations, uh, which she asked for on that experience of pain, trauma and recovery, please put those in um, uh, also, and then we'll type those up as... Rashida is speaking and come back to them if that's appropriate. If there aren't any, don't worry, we'll move on. So uh, before I int- uh, before we go on to Rashida, first an apology. I gave her an outdated introduction. I'm very outdated, so it's not that surprising. Um, She's actually an ESRC postdoctoral fellow in, in the methodology department at um, uh, LSE. She has gone on to better things. Uh, and uh, congratulations for that. So she will now speak for 10 minutes and then we'll go to Q and A. Could everybody keep their mics on mute please? A few rogue noises have appeared, uh, which is very off-putting for the speakers. So if you could just double check that you're on mute. Thank you. Rishita, over to you.
2: Um, thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Ampofo, for such a beautiful and powerful and I think a really generative and, and vulnerable Um, I think that was such a beautiful word to use and I think and your presentation I think really captured a lot of the emotions and the personal and political ways in which we engage with decolonization. I think the idea of vulnerability is so central to it um, and which I think makes it so sometimes quite hard to to have that conversation to call in um, to call people in as much as we are naming and making visible the kinds of epistemic violence that you've that you've set out. Um before I sort of pick up on some of the other things that you've you've touched on, I I love the idea of a decolonization auntie. Um, In in I'm Indian and for me an auntie can sometimes be a very tongue-in-cheek reference to someone older, but it also signifies someone who has knowledge um, and someone who has care and Um, as part of those genealogies that you that you talk about and you began with this this incredible roll call um, acknowledging our ancestors and those who we've lost but also those who have come before us and have given us so many different forms of knowledge Um, and while we're focusing on decolonizing academia I think I, I was really struck by the breadth Of people and ancestors that you called upon from storytellers, musicians, activists, academics, those who've given us theory, who've given us words, who've given us music. And I think this this points to these genealogies of knowledge, these what is the knowledge that we value, what is the knowledge that we can bring into our our struggle uh, for decolonization in academia. Um, And one of the things that I'm often struck with when we talk about decolonizing academia um, is how we talk about academia as so though it functions in a vacuum, as though as a structure, it is separate of the contexts um, and the realities of, of, of the world around it. And as you were speaking, you were drawing on um, Black Lives Matter and the ways in which that comes into the classroom. And, and the the four the, um, the authors that you mentioned from Critical African Studies and the, the, the four areas and dimensions of decolonizing that they were talking about the structural, the epistemic, the personal, and the relational I found a particularly useful frame to think about how it is that we can begin to dismantle um, the structures in um, academia. So, when we think about decolonization as a verb, as an action, as a resistance, um, I think it also signals in many ways across those four elements but how we are resisting at the same time as we're being co-opted, as the struggle is being co-opted by academia, by um, resist other forms of resistance against decolonization um, in society itself. Um, and, and I wondered how in the continued push or the continued drive to reimagine our worlds, um, we do this at the same time as grappling with this pushback. Um, I'll pause here, I was hoping we could actually have more of a conversation than me just reflecting fully, if that would be okay. Do
0: you wanna come back to Rashida?
2: So Rashida, over to you. No, I was wondering if you, if like how in our project of decolonization, uh, while we were pushing for a move forward, um, how we grapple with that at the same time as confronting the resistance to decolonization. One form of that resistance is a, a co-optation of the language. So for example, I, I know a lot of people were up in arms um, a, a couple of weeks ago, I think maybe even towards the end of last year, where there was a suggestion that we could decolonize the World Bank or the IMF. Um, so whilst there's that's one form of distraction, I think, uh, there's also a very blatant pushback against decolonization as a concept, as a political correctness, as a uh, distraction that Academia is not the place for this, mm-hmm. potentially. So it you're we're, we're functioning on two fronts. one both making the case for it and holding space and, and pushing back against the epist- epistemic violence whilst at the same time reimagining or demonstrating the alternate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wondered about what like how, one, how we continue to do that without complete exhaustion, but at the same time bringing people together. But continue to bring people along on that journey towards our, um, ima- uh, this reimagined world.
1: What what did Du Bois call it? It's my aging brain. What did he call it?
2: Our double um,
1: consciousness. Yes, our double consciousness. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, unfortunately it comes with the territory. We have to carry our double consciousness with us, and we have to be conscious of our double consciousness and the need to maintain our double consciousness until until. You know this colonized space goes away, which it, which I mean, I, it 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 won't, and it will, and so you know we, we we just have to live, um, you know that that um, you know we we have to embody it. Uh, when you are talking about the World Bank, I'm reminded of when uh, good old Maggie Thatcher said that we should um, transform. What did she say? I can't remember her exact words. Well, something about transforming apartheid. And you're like, you know, you don't you don't transform apartheid. You get rid of apartheid. Uh, but that was Margaret Thatcher. So uh, no surprise there. But it, 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 that's part of the the appropriation of the language. And then, um, you know, as 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 I was saying, people are, are let off the hook. But I mean, there, there's no there's no easy there's no easy way. There is simply no easy way. I think one of the things that we probably don't do enough of and because of COVID and 2020 in, in our family, we've been trying to do that more consciously is, is to talk about our pain and our trauma. And that's why mm-hmm. you know, I, I came to this topic too, because it's also personal. I mean, we had family losses from COVID. Um, you know, we, we we often feel so compelled to be, you know, these brave warriors and especially young people, you know, it's yo yo ra but we we don't allow ourselves time to grieve, you know, to 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 give ourselves permission to be to be vulnerable and to cry, and to do that together. So we are we are even even in a family we are crying in our separate spaces, um, and maybe not even crying physical tears. You know, we are we are moaning and then we move on. I, I have found that this this is something that we need to I think. It's something that we need to do consciously. And if we're talking about the academy, maybe women have been doing a better job of at this because of the feminist work that we do, you know, and we've been dealing with patriarchy for so long. But I think everyone everyone needs this. Um, of course, it has to be a safe space, you know, where you can you, know, you recognize that you, I, I can do this here and I will not be judged. Judged. If I have a different opinion about how to approach the decolonization agenda, you know, I'm allowed to to think differently in this moment. And I think because we are so anxious for results, we are not patient enough with people who disagree with us, who sometimes actually may be right. And, you know, as as an older academic um, who has been in the trenches, and now I I sometimes rely more on diplomacy and lobbying than mm-hmm. I do. And I find the young people in my life sometimes are impatient with me. And and that's okay. It's a trajectory. You have to be yo-yo rara when you're young. You, sh- you shouldn't wait till you're 90 um, to do that. Um, and then the other thing that I, I wanted to say in response to you, or is it even in response? I mean, it's um, triggered by what you asked and, and some of the comments you made about people's experiences. Even beyond the appropriation is, is the anger. And I have seen on Twitter, academics who have been angry, and who have, you know, really um, questioned, you know, what's all this decolonization about? Uh, why do we need to do this? People are just being on their own sexy uh, pop culture journey. They, you know, it's, it's not really serious work they are doing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and embedded in that is fear. They don't, rec- they don't acknowledge the fear. They just, you know, create this, um, you know, re-reductionist uh, space, ridiculing, caricaturing. And it's, it's extremely painful. And mm-hmm. I have tried to resist engaging with with people like that because I know when the conversation starts, it's probably going nowhere and they're just going to annoy me more and, um, you know, cause greater pain. But, but but there's that too. And I have had to say some of these are my colleagues, I mean, not my colleagues in the sense that we are collegial or we are friends, but people who are in the academic fraternity with me and I have to live with them. And so, at some point, I have to be kind to them, and um, and and when I say that younger people are angry, it's like, yeah, always. Black people have to show kindness, and we have to be, you know, it's it's like, no, we are tired, we are fed up. But um, as Martin Luther King fa- famously said, you can't drive out hate with more hate, mm-hmm. you know. I would say you can't drive out anger with, uh, yeah, some. Well, can you drive out anger with more anger? Maybe sometimes. <laughs> But but definitely but, but not hate and, and mm-hmm. that's where we need to be generous and kind also.
2: I think the um as you say the creating spaces for reconciling, I think, with the pain and the trauma that is so present. Um and sometimes is just I think this underlying space in classrooms in our curriculum and what is in that erasure um of of and, and the lack complete lack of recognition. Um, of other ways of knowing and being and experiencing or coming into a space and what you bring with you into that space. And I, and, and when you were talking towards the end about the reimagining of our worlds, I was thinking, what do we do with all this pain and this trauma? Um, how do we, how do we, because I don't think it's as in the story when you were talking about um, building around the crack and I think the pain and the trauma in so many ways are these cracks. Mm-hmm. And in in I think in a lot of the efforts at the moment, it's trying to paint over the cracks mm-hmm. rather than acknowledging that it is there. And how do we build around it as we recreate and reimagine our worlds? Um, and I and, and how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that is present to the pain and the trauma uh, without sort of re-etching it or, or re like opening up? the wounds again are causing more
1: hurt and trauma and i don't have the answer to that but some thoughts and as you were speaking i hadn't thought about this before but as you were speaking and talking about cracks there's a form of of art in japan i i, I don't know what it's called
2: kintsugi i believe
1: okay yes that, where you you know you you put the pieces back together but you you you, we see the cracks. It's included in the art form. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, as you, we were speaking, that maybe that's what we need to do. And when we do these truth and reconciliation stuff, they seem to be well intentioned, but um, uh, I don't know. Maybe they achieve something. Maybe there's some justice there. I don't know. They they seek reconciliation by um, valorizing the pain, and and. I think that, I mean, when I look at, at least for 2020, a lot of the exasperation and frustration in the conversations, it's about people not valorizing that this is real. You know, this is what have gone through. It is, you know, it is true. We understand that being a black man and walking on the streets of some city in the U.S. or, you know, in Canada as well, which we like to romanticize, or in Europe, You know, your chances of being attacked, shot, accused of a crime are are way higher, and and for women as well, but maybe in, in different ways. You know, just acknowledging that that is true, and therefore I understand you, is the beginning, not the end, it's the beginning. Um, And even even within my own family, now everybody has, you know, Zoom this and Zoom that and family groups and WhatsApp groups and so on. Even within my my larger family, sometimes we have very sharp um, disagreements because not everybody is on the same page. And of course, the fake news is also circulated. And now I have to do the educating again and have to explain to you why what you have just said is not true or is partly true and, and so on. It's 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 hard. But in as much as I wouldn't give up on my, on my biological family members, in this project, you know, we can't. And I know I'm mm-hmm. rambling right now, but I, but I like the, the, you know, the pottery thing came to my mind that, you know, there's, there's, this sounds cliche. There's a certain beauty in the pain. Of course, only if there's healing subsequent. If there's no healing, then, you know, the, yeah. the, the pain is wasted. There's healing and recovery me in my pain and somebody else is encouraged you know by my story mm-hmm. and has a different story because of what I've gone through you know as I have a t-shirt that says um you know hire a tub man, and um we're free because the, be, be, something to the effect that we, we can enjoy this space now because of what they did for us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for them, it was a political project. Um, you know, this, 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 is the, this is the value of that pain, you know, for them looking yeah. forward if they could see us now, and for mm-hmm. us uh, looking backward, you know, standing on their shoulders and so on. What mm-hmm. you said. That's why we have their stories, yeah. because they tell us that all of these people were survivors, Obviously, I picked the survivors. I could have picked some. I picked the survivors because those are the ones that I want to call my ancestors. I think that as long as we live, the the, the pain is not going to go away. Um, we can. Um, there's a song by somebody, um, you know, Beauty Out of Ashes or something like that.
0: Uh, huge thanks for that conversation, Rashita. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE. And you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website or find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.